this morning. We're not going to be continuing our uh, series through Galatians. Uh, we've been slowly making our way through the book of Galatians. The Lord laid it on my heart to take us through Galatians and Ephesians to discuss the man-made dilemma between law and grace and then further simply teach on the life as a Christian in light of Jesus Christ and his finished work. But this morning we're going to be coming out of the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. So if y'all can go ahead and turn to the book of Habakkuk whenever you're ready. While you're turning there, let me tell you to just keep us in prayer for family camp. Um, you know, just pray for us for the journey there, the journey back, and for our stay. We're expecting the Lord to do wonderful things. And don't forget, next Friday night, Brother Paris Reagan from Jimmy Swaggart Ministries is going to be with us Friday night at 7 o'clock, so I'll be here for that. The book of Habakkuk, it's between the books of Nahum and Zephaniah, it's towards the end of the Old Testament. It is one of, as considered, one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. And the reason why people call these people minor prophets is not because they are of less importance, but rather because their books, as we have them today, we just don't have as much of their writings as we do people like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, people like that. But the book of Habakkuk is very, very unique, and we're going to begin... In, we're going to begin in chapter 2, verse 2, Habakkuk 2, 2. It says, And the Lord answered me and said, Write down the vision and make it plain upon ta tables, that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. We all pray with you, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful day that you've given us. God, we ask that you send us send the Holy Spirit down to minister to us, to make this message meaningful, Lord. I ask that you anoint my lips to properly minister what you'd have me say, God. Anoint all of us, anoint our hearts to properly receive what you'd have us receive. God, teach us, minister to us, God. We'll give you all the praise and glory and honor, Lord. We just thank you for your finished work that you've done for us. We say all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Habakkuk is an interesting book because... Habakkuk, for one thing, even by ancient Israel standards, is a unique Jewish name. It, it was not a common name in ancient Israel. So uncommon that most people don't even really know what Habakkuk's name even means. Most people, however, believe that his name could mean to embrace. And another word for embrace is accept. In the book of Habakkuk, what makes it so interesting, much like his own name, what makes this book so unique, is that Habakkuk, a prophet of God, it, this book isn't really about a prophet prophesying to people as much as it's about a prophet learning to accept a prophecy that God has given him. It wasn't a good word, but it was a word from God, and it needed to be prophesied. 
Habakkuk would have lived in the later 600 BC era in ancient Israel's history. And during this time, Israel and Judah specifically, who who he would be ministering to, the southern kingdom of Judah, had become so immoral and so godless, there were many injustices going on in Judah during Habakkuk's time, and a judgment that God had been putting forth for well over a century was at the doorstep of Judah. God was about to pass judgment on this nation. And Habakkuk, this book begins with the prophet praying to God in a way almost lamenting over the state of his nation because this is not the nation that David was once the king over. It's not the nation that Joshua would get to see established. This was a godless nation. Israel and Judah always had a history of being godless. The times whenever they were, when they would serve God were few and far between, but now it is at a point to where the leaders of Judah, including the, the, the political leaders and even the religious leaders, are taking advantage of the common man in Judah, the poor people in Israel. There are many injustices because in some ways many believe that the poor people, the common, the common citizens, the common folk as we would call them today, were being having their money basically stolen for them, stolen from them just in a more legal and religious manner, which is still theft. There were many injustices injustices going on in Judah, and all of this was a symptom of a greater spiritual problem. And whenever you know we read about the minor prophets, it would have been a regular thing you read about these prophets towards the end of the Old Testament, and you see them regularly calling out injustices in Israel and in Judah's government, and that raises the question these days, especially with uh, very some of the very popular philosophies that we've accepted that our culture has, like critical race theory, social justice, things like this. And the question is raised, you know, does the church have a responsibility to call out injustices when they are there? And there's no biblical precedent that commands the church to call out injustices when they are there. If anything, it's more of a personal conviction that every church should weigh out for themselves. But even whenever there's a right way and a wrong way to call out uh, uh, social injustices, government injustices in a society, if you call them out and then present yourself as the solution, you're doing it wrong because mankind is not the solution for the problems that he has made. And so many of these policies that our politicians have tried passing throughout the years prove that. It's been well over 50 years since bills like the Civil Rights Act, the Voters' Rights Act were passed, we're still talking about race in America. We have to figure out now who, what exactly is real racism between that and who's just playing victim. Some people use racism as an excuse to make themselves seem like a victim so that they'll get more privilege from other people. Not only are there injustices, but there's the further injustice in our society where people use an injustice to solely benefit themselves by making them out to be a victim. It's one injustice after the other. And there's nothing wrong with the Christian calling these things out. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing condemnable about it. But the issue is is that we have to be content by knowing that only God and His ways can actually solve these many problems in our country. And we have to bring ourselves to a contentment in realizing that however God is going to deal with this nation is how He's going to deal with it. 
Habakkuk is complaining, I say complaining for a lack of a better word, to God about these grievances in Judah and how exactly, you know, they got to the place that they were at right now. Because when it comes to injustices, you are not, you're not, you're not preaching about it right until you highlight the fact that these are just symptoms of a much greater problem. A man murders another man in cold blood. A man rapes a woman with no conscience whatsoever, seemingly. Things that happen all the time. And these are, these are horrible things. But at the end of the day, out of these bad, sinful, outward actions are all more so symptoms of a much more serious inward problem. The spiritual state of Judah was not at all what it needed to be. And at this point, God had given the nation of Judah well over a hundred years to repent of their sins and turn back to him. The prophet Isaiah prophesied, well, before I get ahead of myself, the Lord responds to Habakkuk's lamenting, Habakkuk's prayers. Habakkuk begins in this book by basically asking God to just do something about everything that's going on because Habakkuk looks around him in Judah and seemingly from his eyes God isn't really doing anything. God appears to just be letting everything happen the way that it is and Habakkuk maybe again for lack of a better word just approaches God in prayer one day and he asks God Lord will you bring justice to this nation will you bring justice to us oh God and the Lord responds to Habakkuk and he says Habakkuk it is okay I'm sending the Chaldeans to basically destroy and the Lord even specifies the Chaldeans are coming for violence which is basically the modern equivalent of that would be to say that they are coming for blood and when Habakkuk hears this, the prophet is absolutely shaken to his core. It's evident that that is not at all how Habakkuk thought that God was going to deal with Judah's sins. The Chaldeans were the Babylonians. And by this point, the Babylonians would have probably earned a very intense reputation, at least to their surrounding nations, because just about a decade before this, the events of Habakkuk happened, the Babylonians would destroy Nineveh. A prophecy that came to pass under the ministry of the prophet Nahum, which is right before Habakkuk. Nahum, who had to prophesy Nineveh's destruction about a century after Jonah would minister to the Ninevites, a century before Nahum would minister, before Nahum would prophesy about Nineveh's destruction, the Lord would send Jonah, who is probably the worst evangelist in the Bible, who tried to run away from God and basically had to be forced to go and preach to these Gentiles that either you repent or God will destroy this city. But Jonah eventually did have to, really have to, go and preach to the Ninevites. And when he does, a miraculous revival takes place. One of the most miraculous conversions that you read about in the Bible, this decrepit, wretched, sinful city that did not know God at all. All of these poor and spirit Gentiles repent of their sin and they turn to God. And it's one of the most miraculous conversion stories in the Bible. And it proves to us just how powerful God is over the spirit of this world and the spirit of the flesh. But you can't rely on yesterday's revival for today's walk with God. 
because a hundred years have passed since Jonah's time, and Nineveh has fallen from grace. The society has gone back to their sinful ways, and the worst part is that they have been so blessed since Jonah's ministry. Nineveh had become one of, if not the most powerful city in the world, leading basically what was then the Assyrian Empire. And even the Assyrians had their thumb over the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. But because of their sin, the Lord would send the prophet Nahum to prophesy of their impending destruction. Which to them, before the destruction happened, would have sounded silly. Because the way that Nineveh had prospered so much in their strength in the span of that century, they had built a magnificent wall around their entire city. This, the city looked, as the Open Bible Commentary describes, the city looked impregnable because of how strong their defenses were. They had a big wall that stretched so high, I don't remember how high it stretched, but so unbelievably high, a wall that was so wide, I believe the number is about three to five chariots could run alongside the wall next to each other. That's how big and wide this magnificent wall was. But what would happen, and the Lord was specific in giving Nahum the prophecy, the Lord told Nahum to, to, to tell Nineveh that the Babylonians specifically will destroy this city because of your sins, Nineveh. <clears throat> Which again would have probably seemed unlikely to the Ninevites because Assyria owned the Babylonians. The Babylonians served the Assyrians. But as history tells us, the Bible doesn't go into these details, but as history tells us, the Tigris River, which flowed right near the walls of Nineveh, apparently pushed up against the walls one, at some point, I assume violently, because the Tigris River would have caused a breach in Nineveh's walls. And it would be this breach that the Babylonians would take advantage of and infiltrate the city and not even conquer Nineveh, but the Babylonians absolutely wiped them out. The destruction of Nineveh was so intense that the remains of Nineveh were not even found until the 1800s. The Babylonians did a nasty work on this city, totally wiped them out. These are the people that God is going to send to judge Judah. When Habakkuk hears that, you imagine that he just falls to his knees and he says to God, Lord, that, that doesn't make any sense. Of all people, you're sending in a group of people who obviously are less righteous than we are, who are more deserving of your judgment than we are. And he doesn't say this word for word, but the sentiment is very strong. It doesn't make sense of all ways to judge Judah. Send in the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. They won't conquer us. They'll destroy us. And that's when the Lord responds with what we read. And that's when the Lord tells Habakkuk the iconic statement that we read multiple times in the Bible. Habakkuk the just shall live by his faith. That's God's response to Habakkuk's lamenting, to Habakkuk's crying out. And on the surface of things, it doesn't make any sense. But this is what God is going to do. Habakkuk's challenge isn't really to prophesy, but it's more so to accept beforehand the prophecy that God has given him to preach. There are a few things that we can learn, uh, because Habakkuk says in the first chapter of this book that the law has been 
basically, the law has been slacked. The law of God has been slacked. At this point, life's living in Jewish culture is so detached from the Mosaic law. Anything having to do with the law is basically out of question at this point. So the law is just, it's not even a matter of, are, are we keeping the law? And in this we see that the law does not give you eyes of faith. The law does not do that. The law exposes to you and I man's fallenness and God's holiness. That's what we learn from the law. The law teaches us, Paul would call the law a schoolmaster. The law teaches us to depend further on God and his righteousness. For us in the new covenant, it teaches us to depend on Christ and his finished work because that's what God has given us to depend on. That's what we depend on. That's what the law drives us to. And the power that we get from the finished work of Christ gives us the ability to actually live for God appropriately. That's the purpose of the law. It's to minister Christ to us today. That's what the law is for. The law does not give us eyes of faith, but it points us to this to who we should have our faith in. Secondly, we have to understand that God deals righteously and should be exclusively trusted with righteous judgment, even if his view of judgment doesn't fit our view of judgment. And that's a big pill to swallow. But the thing about Habakkuk, Habakkuk isn't just nagging to God. He's not unnecessarily complaining. If we were learning what Habakkuk is learning about the nation that we live in, if we learned if God told us that Russia and China are going to conquer the United States, that is so far from the top of our list on how we want God to deal with this country. But God deals the way that he sees fit to deal with the nation. And lastly, thirdly, faith is a lifelong endeavor. You and I walk by faith, not by sight, and that is not a new concept because that is what Habakkuk is having to do right now. We walk by faith, not by sight. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. That's what the author of Hebrews has to say. And speaking of the book of Hebrews, that statement that the just shall live by faith is quoted three times in the New Testament. At first, it's quoted at the very beginning of the book of Romans. Secondly, it's quoted in Galatians 3.11, which we read that last week. Paul talking to the Galatians. And it is quoted again in the book of Hebrews. And after being told that the just shall live by faith, the Lord tells Habakkuk that the Chaldeans would eventually be judged as well. This is what the Lord says to give some kind of closure to Habakkuk. And you got to keep in mind how Habakkuk is seeing all of this. Habakkuk doesn't know about the Messiah the way that we know about the Messiah today. Habakkuk doesn't know that the Jewish people are not going to be totally wiped out, but he does know that judgment is coming. And then after that, more judgment is coming to the nation that God used to judge them. Habakkuk is literally receiving a word of judgment after judgment. Today we call that just the doom and gloom sermon. But this is what God is giving Habakkuk, and it is grieving him because Habakkuk doesn't want this to happen. There is no... It will all be okay right now. God isn't giving Habakkuk the luxury right now, in this book at least, of knowing that there's coming an hour where everything will be okay. Habakkuk is just going to have to, by faith, believe that God does know what he's doing. 
And then after telling Habakkuk all of this, we read in chapter 3, verse 2, a prayer for mercy. He says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. And that is the perfect, I mean, that is just one of the most, that is probably the godliest response to God working in his sovereignty against the nation. Because in that we see that Habakkuk has now learned to accept what at this point has become the inevitable. Now you have to keep in mind that God has given Judah just the longest time that you can think of to repent of their sins and turn back to God. Isaiah was prophesying about the Babylonian captivity well over a century before it even happened. Long before Habakkuk was even born, Isaiah was preaching the same thing. So we know that the the people of Judah, like Nineveh, have had at least about a hundred years to repent of their sins, and they never did. It probably would have been common to the people of Judah who knew about Isaiah's prophecy so long ago. They probably would have been thinking something like, well, it's been a hundred years at least, and God hasn't judged us yet. So you know what? I don't think God is going to judge us. I guess it was just a dud on Isaiah's part. Friend, God is merciful and he is graceful and he withholds judgment. He is long-suffering. You know, one of the godliest things that you could do as a Christian is be patient because that is one of the most godliest aspects that a Christian can have because God is very patient. He is very long-suffering, and his long-suffering has given many people the benefit to repent and turn away from their sins and turn to him. His long-suffering is beneficial, but if all a society does is just take advantage of that long-suffering of his patience to further sin and to further draw away from him, the idea of long-suffering is not just to erase judgment. It's to give, specifically to give somebody the opportunity to repent from judgment. The fact that God is long-suffering in and of itself does not mean that judgment is never going to appear. It doesn't mean that judgment is never going to pass. It means that God is giving you and I, everybody, a big chance to turn away from our sins and to turn to Him, to us today, specifically, to turn to Jesus Christ. So Judah has had their chance, and they just cannot go any longer the way that they're going. Judgment is so inevitable at this point, it is at their doorstep, basically. Many believe that Habakkuk would have been a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah who would see the Babylonian captivity come to pass. But before we go into that, let's look at that last statement in verse 2 in chapter 3. In wrath, remember mercy. That is the prophet of God's prayer to God on behalf of his nation. In that statement, in these four words, we really see the mindset of a true follower of God because that phrase, those two words, in wrath, we see Habakkuk having accepted what God is going to do, even though he doesn't want God to do it. He understands that God knows what he's doing, and he accepts the plan of God, even though he doesn't fully understand it himself. In wrath. And then he says, remember mercy. And in that we see the heart of this prophet because he continually strives for mercy. He accepts the fact that judgment is going to be passed on Judah. And he accepts the fact that wrath is going to be poured out on these people. 
He accepts the fact that the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, are coming for blood. And he accepts the fact that it's not going to be a pleasant sight at all. But he pleads to God still, even in the midst of accepting truth. He continually pleads to God to remember your mercy to these people when you judge them. Jeremiah had a similar mentality. There are a couple things to learn about the prophet Jeremiah who would preach the same thing that Habakkuk would have to preach to these people. Jeremiah, who was called from a young age to prophesy, and throughout, as far as we know, just about all of his life, he would basically have to preach the same thing so often that if Israel, if Judah does not repent, the Lord will send the Babylonians to judge this nation. And like Habakkuk evidently had to deal with, nobody would accept that prophecy. Nobody would repent. If we had Jeremiah as a prophet today, listen, we say, this, we say these things a lot in the church. We need another Jeremiah. We need another John the Baptist. But Jeremiah would not see anybody. He would not get to lead anyone to the Lord. People were so rebellious. If we had a Jeremiah today, we would call this man a failure. We would say that he's not a patriot, that he doesn't care about his nation. People like Jeremiah care more about their nation than any politician we will ever vote into office because they will tell you what God has laid on their heart, hoping that you will repent. But Jeremiah would never see that. He had an uncompromising ministry. He would tell the people what God wanted him to say. And secondly, he loved the Jewish people. Like Habakkuk, Jeremiah did not want this judgment to come to pass. He pleaded with God as well to withhold his judgment, but he did not let that interfere with the truth. Because if Jeremiah were to betray, or Habakkuk, anybody about this, were to betray what God had told them to say and actively told the Jewish people a lie, they would be false prophets. And God has, God has, give, has shown us a history about himself of dealing very harshly with false prophets in particular. But both of these men, their ministries were uncompromising when it came to it, and they loved their people. They loved their people. But nevertheless, the inevitable happened. The people in Judah would not repent of their sins. And sure enough, the Babylonians attacked multiple times. The Babylonians would establish themselves under as a pretty serious empire under the reign, and they had some funny names, under the reign of their then-king Nebuchadnezzar. Sounds like a Buzz Lightyear villain, honestly. But then their next king, Nebuchadnezzar, who we are more familiar with, would maintain their status as an empire. And it would be under Nebuchadnezzar's reign that God would use the Babylonians to attack Judah multiple times. There would be three times that the Babylonians would come to attack them, and each time the Babylonians would just deport more people and bring them back to the empire as what was at first basically hostages. This was the great historic Babylonian captivity of the Jewish people. And I believe it was this last time that they attacked, they basically destroyed Jerusalem absolutely wiped them out. The Babylonians were not the conquering type. They were a big nation. They were a mighty nation, but they were not as interested in conquering everybody as other empires you hear about, like the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Romans, these people who just conquered, conquered, conquered. The Babylonians would conquer, but they 
didn't conquer as much as they destroyed. They didn't want any ground for any enemies. They absolutely destroyed their enemies. Anyone who tried to pose themselves as a threat to the Babylonians or the Babylonians saw as a threat by any means, the Babylonians would make an effort to wipe them out. And probably the capstone, if you will, the true embodiment of God's judgment against Israel is the Babylonian is whenever the Babylonians would destroy the temple of God. The great wonder of the world that's that even King David would not get to see the completion of. The great temple that had to be built so precisely, the place that people would come from outside countries to offer sacrifices to God, was destroyed. And only to add further insult to injury, the Ark of the Covenant went missing forever. And some have accepted the likely possibility that the Babylonians actually destroyed the Ark of the Covenant. This was a very significant time in the Jewish people's history in the worst way imaginable. And to think it's only more bizarre when you think that this isn't just one nation attacking Israel, but it's God passing judgment against them. And you read about that, that aspect specifically, and you think, I mean, if this is God passing judgment, why in the world has he allowed the temple to be destroyed, the Ark of the Covenant to go missing? And the fact of the matter is that it wouldn't have mattered. Because Ezekiel, who was also prophesying at this same time, he would be used of God to prophesy before the Babylonian captivity and even sometime after it started. Ezekiel, the man of many great visions, would have to deal with the burden of seeing in a vision the Spirit of God leave the temple of God. Which basically just meant that at that point, this covenant between God and man was officially broken. The Spirit of God was not in the temple. The Spirit of God was not over the Ark of the Covenant. And nothing about any of it was special now. Simply because the Spirit of the Lord was no longer there. The covenant broken. So... As tragic as it is to read about the destruction of the temple, it would not have meant anything spiritually because God was not there when it was destroyed to begin with. This was a dark age for Judah and Israel. The Babylonians came and they slaughtered many Jewish people. So many Jews were killed by the Babylonians. And Jeremiah, having to deal with all of this, and... You know, whenever something like this happens, I mean, the ultimate question that many people would ask is simply why? Why, God, have you allowed this to happen? But Jeremiah, seeing all of this happen in Jerusalem, the very nation that God had established as a personal capital, kind of, we read Jeremiah lamenting in Lamentations chapter 3, and it's one of the most famous passages of Scripture. In Jeremiah 3, 22 and 23, viewing the judgment of God having been passed, seeing Jerusalem, the city of God, as it was considered at that point, in ruins. Viewing all of it, Jeremiah says in his lamenting, he says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. <coughs> 
They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. How do you say that whenever something this awful has happened? How can you say great is your faithfulness, God, when your home has been destroyed in a way by God himself? The Babylonians were a mighty empire, but... You know, they were God's tool, whether they realized it or not. They were a tool that, that were used of God. The Lord used them to pass judgment. So this isn't a conflict between Jerusalem and Babylon. It's a conflict between the Jews and God. That's the conflict here. And Jeremiah, looking at the ruin, says how says that the Lord's mercies are new every morning. Then how can you say something like that? Here's how you can say something like that. Because the just do, in fact, live by faith. The Babylonians would eventually be conquered by the Persians. And after they were conquered by the Persians, the Persian king at that time, King Cyrus, would end the Babylonian captivity. And he would allow the Jewish people to go back to Jerusalem, to their home and what's interesting about that is that whenever the Babylonian captivity had actually ended and the Jews were allowed to go back home, is that not all of the Jews even went back to Jerusalem. Because for one, some of them were just too old to make the trip. And secondly, as history tells us, the Lord was so faithful to them during their time in exile, during their time in this captivity, that many of them had established businesses. They had established families in Babylon. And they couldn't leave because this was their home now. Not only that, but the Lord saw to it to give them the legal right in this pagan land to freely worship Him. And we read about all of that happening. And you know, we read about this stuff in the book of Daniel, which took place during the Babylonian captivity. We read about Nebuchadnezzar, the mightiest man in the world getting to see God's handiwork over his people. We read about the miraculous conversion of Nebuchadnezzar himself in Daniel chapter 4. God worked constantly on the Jews, on the Jewish people's behalf during the Babylonian captivity because even in the midst of judgment, God was merciful to them. God honored Habakkuk's prayer because even in wrath, God remembered his mercy. They would go back to Jerusalem where the temple was absolutely ruined and they would seek great spiritual reform. The law and the words of the prophets would be rediscovered among the rubble of Jerusalem and they would slowly but surely reconstruct the temple of God even though it would never be comparable to its original glory that was Solomon's temple. They would still get to rebuild the temple and there would be a great spiritual reform, reformation in Jerusalem. Because throughout the captivity, the Jews had learned to redirect their focus back to God. And there's a last thing that we can learn about that because this is a question that a lot of us here ask very regularly. Is America doomed for judgment? Some believe that judgment is already being passed on our nation. Maybe it is. I don't know. But one thing that we can learn from the Babylonian captivity is that God's judgment will benefit his people in the long run. Because in the captivity, we see how God used all of these circumstances to show the Jewish people 
how mighty he was. And in seeing how mighty he was, they resurrected their faith back to God. They renounced their faith in their idols that they previously worshipped, and they learned to live for God once again. Habakkuk didn't know any of that. As a matter of fact, God tells Habakkuk in that first chapter, and I paraphrase, but he tells Habakkuk, he says, If I told you all that I was going to do, you wouldn't believe it. God intentionally kept all of this from Habakkuk. And we don't really know why, aside from that one statement. Habakkuk wouldn't believe God anyways. But Habakkuk, as I mentioned earlier, would not understand the Messiah like we know, like we understand him today. Habakkuk wouldn't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ the way we do today. And the fact is, especially since God is saying it, so I imagine that gives you, gives you a pretty safe leverage to come to the conclusion that Habakkuk would not believe God. But he has to accept what God is telling him right now. And the only way to truly accept what I'm giving you, Habakkuk, is by faith. The law is not coming to your rescue at this point, Habakkuk. Have faith in me. Believe that I know exactly what I am doing, Habakkuk. God does know exactly what he's doing. And then we conclude in Habakkuk in chapter 3, verses 17, 18, and 19. The last chapter of this is basically a psalm. Habakkuk was of uh, lineage of Levitical priests, and psalms would just not be that alien to him. And it's basically a psalm of worship. He's praising God for his power. He's respecting God's sovereignty in life. And in these last few verses of Habakkuk, the prophet says to God, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fall, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flocks shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. And he will make my feet like hinds feet, and he will make me to walk upon the a walk upon my high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. And that last sentence is just a direction to who would have to sing this in the temple. That's how Habakkuk ends. He accepts what God has told him and he's worshiping the Lord. Those last three verses are a total statement of faith. At this point, Habakkuk is truly living by faith in God. He's accepted God. He believes God. He knows that God knows better than he does. Paul would say in Galatians 3.11, he says, It is evident that the just shall live by faith. He says that, that it's evident that we know, you know, we know, we know that the just shall live by faith. And they would know because Habakkuk's Old Testament testimony proves so. Christianity is really just one constant exchange of faithfulness. It's God's faithfulness to you, which we call that grace. And it's you continually walking by faith in God. God's faithfulness. We might not always know why God does what he does, but we know that his ways are just. We know that his ways are holy. 
and that his ways are beneficial to his people. And we know all of this because his, his faithfulness is great indeed. God at no point desired to destroy the Jewish people. Judgment did not mean destruction because it would be through these people that God would bring the Savior of the world into the world. And you can take that promise back as far as Genesis 3. When God tells the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and this woman. And her seed will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's a promise that God made so early on at the very beginning of the Bible. The Jewish people would never be destroyed because these being really the most blessed people in history would be able to... Uh, bring the Messiah into the world. God would bring the Messiah through them. And Jesus would live his entire life totally satisfying the righteous demands of the law. And then at the end of his life, he would be brought up to Golgotha's hill to be crucified, where on the cross he would totally satisfy the divine wrath of God. And then he would rise again three days later after his death, and he would ascend back to the throne of God, where he constantly makes intercession for God's people. God's faithfulness is great indeed. Amen. Amen. Will y'all pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this beautiful day that you've given us. As was mentioned in our earlier prayer, God, we thank you for the rain that you've given us today, Lord. We bless your name in this place, God, and we are, as we're reminded today, of the faithfulness that you've constantly given us, Lord. Train us to walk faithfully for you, God. There is nothing that we can give you that can truly compensate for your grace that you've displayed in our lives, mainly on the cross of Calvary, Lord. And as we read how you dealt in judgment, even violently so, against your own nation, Judah, we can still take comfort in knowing that your judgment is more so beneficial than it is anything else, God, because you want our faith to be strengthened. And God, we want this nation to turn back to you, Lord. We want our nation to turn back to you, God. And although we may not understand your ways always, we trust that you know exactly what you're doing. God, we take you at your word when we remember what Jeremiah said, even in the midst of a ruined Jerusalem where there was no temple, where there was no Ark of the Covenant, where there was no Spirit of the Lord, how a man in even the most devastating condition can still lift his eyes up to that holy hill where his help comes from and says, Great is thy faithfulness. Lord, we bless your name, God. Keep your hand of protection over us throughout this week. Be with us as we take our group to Baton Rouge, God. God, minister to us, Lord, there. Pour out your spirit, God, there. And we'll be sure to give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. And we say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.